I'm Amy Pruitt. I'm Lisa Dumas. I teach Ayurveda and yoga. I teach yoga. I'm a yoga therapist in training, and I offer transformational coaching. But that's just part of the story. We're moms, daughters, wives, and friends. We're always learning, and we've both experienced healing by what we teach. And the intention of this podcast is to offer you our favorite tools from the traditions and sciences that support us as we navigate the realities and stressors of modern life. Each week, we'll share stories, answer your questions, and talk to others who inspire us. Welcome to the Radiant Warrior Podcast. Yoga and Ayurveda to reclaim a courageous heart. This week, Amy and I are so happy to welcome Jody Cron, a mind-body-focused psychotherapist, clinical counselor, embodied transformational women's coach, an inquiry yoga teacher, and the founder of Gather Her Women's Circles. Jody specializes in guiding women of all ages to find and fall in love with their authentic, wild selves, which includes making peace with the bodies they're in. She is also interested in the psycho-spiritual development and transformation of women and finds this happens ideally in women's circles. She has a private clinical practice online and in person in British Columbia, Canada, where she also offers workshops and retreats. Welcome, Jody. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. To continue our introduction of you, Amy and I thought that we would share how each of us knows you because it's all very interconnected and will make you blush because we have a few nice things to say about you. I met you probably about six years ago now. When we were living in San Diego, we decided to move back to our home country of Canada and our home province of British Columbia. Before we moved back to Vancouver, where I am now, we moved to the Okanagan, this gorgeous part of British Columbia that is lakes and mountains and trees. And my parents lived there. And while there, I had been teaching yoga for a few years. And so I was able to open up my own yoga studio. And I met you on one of the mats as just a a beautiful, dedicated student. And as we quickly began to share with one another, I soon learned that you were a very smart, bright, formidable person and a wonderful psychotherapist and a mother that I really looked up to. And the two of us began going on these now signature walks where we've learned a lot from each other over the years. And then through the years, your psychotherapy has taken you into more movement-based therapies and you became part of a somatic coaching program. And that is the program where I decided to also go when you were in your second year. And that's where I met Amy. Yes, Jody, in that program where I met Lisa, on the opening retreat, you shared your story and it really had a big impact on me. I remember sitting there listening to your story that you so beautifully shared. And I know that your work is helping women recover from disordered eating, but I just want to share with you that you have really been an integral part for me in my own recovery from drinking. And I'm going to share that with you a little bit later in this podcast. Yes, there is so much to look forward to, so many topics to get to. The story that Jody shared on that first night of the course where Amy and I met was the very brave story of how Jody's eating was disordered and how she's gone from that to now someone who regularly speaks to herself, I choose life. And that is something that you recently shared with me and was so inspirational to me. So we both thank you so much for how you shared on that evening at our course. And we both thank you so much for being brave and vulnerable enough to agree to come here and speak to us about your journey as well. The first question we have for you, we'll start at the beginning. When you were little, when you were growing up, what did you learn about food and about eating? Okay, well, that's a really important question, Lisa, and I think it's an important question for all of us to reflect on. We don't always think that way, you know, how earlier experiences have influenced who we are today and how we are in the world, and in this case, how we are with food and our bodies. So for me, um, 
you know, very, very formatively in my story is that I, I was, you know, I had a very young uh, 16-year-old mother who didn't mean to be pregnant and um, knew she was going to give me up for adoption. So I, I think in utero, there was a lot of anxiety um, that was passing <laughs> through my birth mother into me already. And then, you know, back in the 60s, of course, um, babies were taken away from their mothers immediately if they were going to be given up for adoption. And then I was placed in a foster home. And so, you know, right away, the, the, I think the experience of not being held, not being fed by my, my biological mother, being fed, you know, back then on a hospital schedule. So it wasn't about being hungry or full. It was just about it's time to eat. So now you're going to have this bottle. And then in particular, um, when I was in this foster home, uh, and I know this because the foster mother wrote a letter uh, to my adoptive mother saying, you know, this, she's such a good baby. You know, we just put her in her car, little car seat and we prop the bottle up by her so she can drink it. And we put the TV on and she doesn't make a peep. And, you know, as I've come to understand my, my, my wounding and my story and how this evolved into an eating disorder, I realized that's probably the very beginning of that, um, that way of really, for a baby, learning to dissociate with food and a screen. Um, I had a lot of things to feel as a baby, obviously, in those circumstances. And that is what I learned, is that if I had warm, sweet milk and a TV screen, um, then I could be calm. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the beginning. That reminds me now of adults and Netflix and chill. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think about that even now, you know, when I, when I get involved in something on TV, like, oh, yes, I learned this. I learned this very young. And it is a way of disconnecting from life and from ourselves. And it's not inherently bad. I mean, we all, I just, now I, I call it conscious zoning out, you know, do it consciously, know that you're doing it, but, re, but make the choice to, you know, come back into life. And so, so much of food, in my experience, was well, just what you had to do, was come to dinner and eat this food. But I didn't have a big association with food tasting really good or really enjoying food. Uh, it, was, it was more just, you know, this is what you get in your lunch, and so if you don't eat it, you're, you're going to be hungry. So, Jody, as you grew older, did that change for you like through your grade school or teenage years was was that idea of you know food was just food and you ate it you didn't really enjoy it was that did that go back as long as you can remember i think those are my earlier memories i think as i got into adolescence uh, a lot of people in my life were dieting. Um, there's all those different diets that got really trendy, you know, the grapefruit diet or the, this diet or the that diet. And though I never was went on a diet as a teenager, um, I, I was influenced by this idea that, you know, obviously when you become an adult, you have to diet to keep a certain kind of body. And so I think there I picked up this idea where there's good food and bad food, healthy food, unhealthy food, fattening food, you know, diet food. It was like all these categories for food. And so I guess just always attaching a story to what I was eating. I'm being good. I'm being bad. This is really fattening. Good thing I have a high metabolism. Um, you know, just all these stories. I definitely want to come back and talk more about that. Um, I've mentioned that on this show before that food is just so fraught and part of it is because there's so much information. And as women, we want to be good. We want to be doing the right things, not to mention all of the messagings that we have about how we should look and how we should eat. I find that to be incredibly overwhelming. So I definitely do want to talk about how 
we can handle all of the information and then the guilt that comes with that this food is bad and this food causes this. And then these days, it almost it's almost about how pure can you be when it comes to your food and this sense that if you eat something impure, that, that suddenly it makes your body somehow impure. I want to go back and continue your story, but do you have any thoughts about that now? For sure. I agree with you, Lisa. It's, we are fraught with stories about food and so much information about what is healthy and what isn't healthy and so many ways of eating and diets. And uh, yes, it, it can be overwhelming. And I, I like what you said that fundamentally, I think as women, we just so want to be good and, you know, or at least appear good and that we're doing the right things. And as mothers, of course, we want to, to, to help our children form a healthy relationship with food. But I think we're being honest, most of us, we don't know how to do that. And I also want to highlight the stories that you shared with us about your early relationships with food. And I just remember this key moment, I was probably... 11 or 12 years old, the me that I was before I learned who I had to be was a pretty audacious, just zest-filled young kid. And the way I did one thing was the way I did everything really big. And so I, I loved food and I had a really healthy, big, robust appetite. And I remember my family was at our little cabin that we had and me and the neighborhood kids had been just playing all day long. And we came home and there was a big barbecue on and the kids got served first and it was so delicious and I was ravenous. And I was just like, I remember just, it was delicious. I ate this entire plate of food and then I went back for more. And in front of all the adults in the room, I was, I was told that, what did you even chew? Yeah, just all, all of this feedback about how fast I just ate and I need to let myself digest. And where did I put that and slow down and no, you can't have another. And that is such a strong memory to me. And I almost feel like it began to make me question not only the way that I was eating, but just sort of this way of being that was maybe too much, you know, eating too much and being too much. I love how you describe that, you know, just being full of robust, zestful energy and wanting to eat. My memories are more of not wanting to eat or eating as little as I could. And not at the when I was little, it had nothing to do with, at least consciously, to do with my body or my appearance. It was just not really enjoying food. I'd eat a, have to eat a hamburger if that's what was being made, but I wouldn't put anything in the hamburger but ketchup. And, you know, I've since learned that hamburgers can be delicious, you know, with lots of fixings, but I, I just, and, but the feedback I received was positive, right? This, this was sort of praise, like, oh, she eats like a little bird and she's just a little skinny thing or, you know, there was it didn't feel good to hear that again consciously, but I think unconsciously I was receiving this message that this was, this was good. Oh, and she'll never have a weight problem, you know, because she eats like a little bird. And, and again, right. As kiddos, we're picking up these messages and internalizing this way of being that must be, this must be good. Uh, even though I look at pictures of myself and think I was malnourished. <laughs> I didn't look healthy. I didn't feel robust or zestful as a child. I often had low iron, in fact, because of my, my poor eating. Do you think that started the routine of how you ate, or do you think that reinforced the way you were eating, the messages that you were getting from those around you? Yeah, that's a good question, Amy. I don't know which one came first, but what I do understand now about the way of eating where we restrict and we, you know, we, cut, we don't take in enough calories or enough variety in foods, I understand that now is very symbolic of not taking in life. Mm. And often when you find somebody who's restricting and on rigid diets or just high, low calorie intake, you will also find a person who is cut off from life. They're mm. not taking in sweetness. They're not taking in love. They're not 
taking in zest. <laughs> and, and I think now I see that because of other uh, traumatic events of my childhood, I, I experienced a lot of sadness and depression as a child. And I think it, that's where it showed up. Mm-hmm. It is, is not enjoying food. And had I had a chef, a gourmet chef parent, maybe that would have looked different. Maybe it would have, I would have been able to emotionally comfort myself through food. Uh, you know, I'm not sure because the food didn't taste good to me or if it, but what I do know for sure is I wasn't taking in life. That's really powerful saying it that way. I've never heard it described like that before, but it just paints this picture of exactly what you're talking about, that by restricting food, you're not taking in life. That's really powerful. That's something that I've learned from Jody in our friendship is how symbolic food can be. For instance, Jody mentioned taking in sweetness, you know, that craving for sweetness, Jody has taught me it can be that we're wanting to feel a little bit sweeter. We're wanting to be acting a bit sweeter, or we're just craving a sweeter experience in our life. Um, so I do appreciate conversations like this about food that help us think about where we came to get our beliefs, the feedback that we got, and then what we internalize from those around us when it came to food. I think it's fascinating listening to you share how you were a very little eater and you were so praised for that. And then for me, I was a very big eater and that wasn't okay. So it's, it's, they're, they're saying the same things just in opposite ways and they affected each of us, uh, I'm sure, in, in very different ways that have affected each of us. So continue to take us through as you were growing up, Jody. Did was that a theme for you then? You feel looking back that as you grew through adolescence and fell in love and met your husband, that there was still a restriction of life going on? Well, uh, what happened uh, before I fell in love um, and married my husband, I um, when I was twenty, I I ended up being uh, like a student missionary. So part of my story is that as, as a child, really as a 10-year-old, I chose to join a faith community that wasn't something my family was a part of, but it was a way for me to uh, feel very accepted and loved and, and find community that did feel like life for me. And that culminated in, in becoming this student missionary. And uh, I, I definitely, you know, was one of those young people who really wanted to be good or at least appear good and to, to be loved. And, and so I learned the rules very quickly in my faith community. And, and I did most of them, at least on the outside. And that kind of culminated with, with being a missionary. And so I found myself on the other side of the world in a very foreign country um, taken away from my peer group and my family and everything. And it turned out that I didn't have a lot of coping mechanisms uh, once those things were taken away. And so this was really the first time that I did experience that food could be a comfort. So it started with me seeking out food that just was familiar. You know, I, maybe I didn't eat it here like hot dogs didn't eat a lot of hot dogs when I lived here, but over there it was like, oh, hot dog, that tastes like Canada. And so I'll have four or, you know, whatever, peanuts, all kinds of things I found that were this familiar. And I learned that eating <clears throat> copious amounts of these things could helped me not to feel so homesick, not to feel so lonely or so bored or so many of the feelings that I had. Um, being in this role of a missionary, which actually turned out to be very uncomfortable for me and not maybe aligned with my truest self, but I was quite disconnected from my truest self. And so, you know, I coped in a way that I could, which was eating <clears throat> quite a bit of food. And this is really when my, I would say my, my strong behaviors began because naturally eating more than I was used to eating, I had, um, my body had changed and expanded. And then people started noticing that because I was in a culture where they would talk very openly about your body. And especially if it was changing, 
And this, I realized, kind of horrified me because I had put a lot of identity, I guess, into being this smaller person. And then this began the cycle of, oh dear, you know, I better stop eating because I actually had no, I, I really didn't even know what a calorie or I didn't really know a lot about diets, even though I was surrounded by them as a kid. I just knew that I had to change something. And uh, so then I got into restricting and you can only restrict for so long without putting yourself into starvation mode. So then that would lead to binging. And I kind of spent the better part of that year going back and forth between those two behaviors. And then I, you know, somewhere in there, I think I ate so much once that I did, it made me sick to throwing up sick. And this, I had never heard of bulimia before. I had no idea that was actually a thing. I just thought in my own little mind, like, oh, now this could be a way that I wouldn't have to starve myself. I could still eat, but then wouldn't have to, you know, necessarily keep that inside my body. And that's really the beginning of my journey through bulimia. How old were you then? Well, that happened all in the year that I was 20. And, um, and of course, I didn't tell anybody about this. I was very embarrassed and ashamed, and it appeared that everybody else knew how to eat properly, and I didn't. <laughs> you know, I had no idea. Um, I got very, very sick there. And so in a way, that was a blessing because that stopped, that did stop all my behaviors because it, I was so unwell. I had to go to the hospital and and then I returned to Canada, sort of thinking, well, that was a weird thing that I was doing in the Philippines. I'm, I'm not going to tell anyone about that. You know, I'll just carry on. And, but of course, I had sort of taught myself, again, unconsciously, that this was, gonna, was a coping mechanism. And actually, at this point, I'd, I'd like to share a metaphor with you that is very helpful for me to understand this part of my life and maybe for the listeners, if you know, whatever, whatever anyone's struggling with, maybe they can relate to this. That year was, if you imagine, you know, all of us kind of have this river inside of us, which would represent our feelings. That year for me, that river inside became turbulent, just rapidest, so much so that I, I just fell into it. I had no idea how to be without river. And whenever a person falls into a river that is that rapidest, you know, the natural thing is that they're going to want to grab on to, you know, a log. They're going to want to grab on to something that floats by them in the river to keep them afloat. And that's what I did. And, I, and for me, you know, that particular log became this behavior of bulimia. You know, for others, it might be alcohol or shopping or so many logs in that river. But that's when, as my life progressed, that was a log that, you know, was familiar to me and it was easy to reach out for when I felt like I wasn't, I couldn't cope with whatever it was I needed to. When you returned from the Philippines and came back to Canada, did that behavior continue now that you were back on familiar turf? Yes, it took a little while, but yes, definitely once I got back into life, uh, it, it did much to my horror then. That behavior, you know, suddenly I knew what binging was. Remember, particularly in the summer, again, being separated from my boyfriend, who's now my husband, but, you know, people that I loved and friends, that, that intense loneliness that I would experience, it was like, oh, now it's like I have this way to to cope with that i have this way you know to fill that and you know like i said i'd already established this sort of coping log this behavior um and so yes that's what i would turn to when when i felt like i wasn't like i couldn't cope you know i know that so many women listening are appreciating this story and can relate and have their own versions of that log, what they reach out to. 
in those times of turbulence for me in the turbulent river of anxiety. It definitely was fear, you know, something that just made me feel a little bit calmer. And that's what all of us do until such a time when we realize that reaching out for something other than within ourselves um, is futile and it will only give us relief momentarily. We, we all We all do that. And I can also relate with reaching for food for comfort. And I still notice myself do that. And that's the difference now is noticing myself. If there's any sort of conflict with my my teenager, once she storms out of the room, I, I can feel myself go, do I have any chocolate in the house? And so I I know that so many of us can relate with what you're sharing. And I just want to tell you how appreciated it is. And if more of us were open and honest with our relationship with food rather than the conversations that I overhear all the time, which is, um, here's what I eat, you know, to, to, to stay being good. Okay, well, here's what I eat. Oh, maybe I'll try that. Maybe then I'll be better if I eat that. If more of us were open, then there might be a little less shame because gosh, it's the, it's the secret keeping. It's, it's the shame that makes us feel so less than toppled onto how we're coping already. So again, thank you for sharing that and take us forward into you know, building a life because uh, I know that you are a mother of four and they're grown now, but you were married, you were busy, you were raising kids and babies what was your relationship with food like and how did you depend on it through those years? Yeah. So, you know, life carried on and this was like my, my little secret thing that was kind of like in my back pocket that if things got too, felt like too much for me, uh, I knew that I, I had this, this thing I could do. And um, I think at this point I had, I did tell my husband, I think even before we were married, there was a few people that I did share it with that I felt safe enough to do that. But otherwise it was pretty, pretty hidden. And, um, and because we were at the time, you know, leaders in our, in a, a certain faith community, then I would put that, you know, pressure on myself as well, that I had to appear, you know, a certain way. And so I couldn't, couldn't share this part of my life, which of course only makes it worse as you were saying, Lisa, that shame. We're actually, I'm coming up to uh, 30 years now, this this next month of being married to a, a really wonderful, kind man. And we've had four children together. And so how things evolved for me, I, I can see that for sure in my pregnancies and nursing, I was able to really keep things sort of under wraps. I, I did know enough to, to not, I, I had such a strong desire to have children and to try to, you know, get it right, whatever right is, but basically try to heal my own, I think, childhood through how I would mother my kids. And I was quite aware that my kids are watching how I eat and how I am with food. And, and I, I do think that probably when I had our first daughter is when I really got serious about like, I need to heal this thing. <laughs> I need, because I don't want my kids to have to carry this or pick this up because I couldn't heal it. And that was <laughs> the beginning of, you know, a long, a long road. What did that look like, Jody? your healing journey? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, what it looks like is recognizing that food isn't really the issue. And I, I think that sometimes a mistake we make is that we make it all about the food. And, you know, you just need to either stop doing that or start doing this, you know, <laughs> something about the food. And I, I think for me, this recognition um, that it's not really about the food, it, that's the behavior, that's what I'm doing, but why am I doing that? And, and you know, what is the symbolism in what I'm, in what I'm doing? First of all, say that, because I talked about the symbolism of restricting. So it might be helpful to, to know that the symbolism of binging is in the same way... Um, you know, we're restricting, we're not taking in life. 
in binging, we're taking in almost like too much life, like this, almost like this idea that there's not going to be enough of it. So I've got to get in as much as I can. Also, to take that a little deeper, and this is really the work of Marion Woodman, who was a Jungian analyst that she herself had anorexia as an adult and worked with um, in addictions and women. And I owe a lot of my learning to her. She talked about this idea that food is matter, and matter is in Latin one of the wor- one of the meanings of matter is mother. And of mm. course, this makes sense when we talk about comfort food, and you know, I always think about this when people have like their creamy vanilla lattes that they, you know, some people use that expression. They're nursing their coffee, you know, through their little sippy cup lid, like. Literally, you know, we, we are trying to take in mothering through food. We're trying to take in nurture, you know, comfort, all the things that we might associate with mothering. That is one way to look at binging is that it's like we're so in lack of it and we're just trying to get in as much as we can. And then interestingly, purging you know, yes, you can think of it like it's a release and it's symbolic of purging out feelings, you know, emotions, sensations that we don't know how to get rid of. But also, if you think about taking in too much food as mothering, or just food in general as mothering, for those of us that have some wounding around our mothers, and this could be our actual mothers. This can just be growing up in a society that's still very dominated by the patriarchy. And so that being diminished in our feminine is also, uh, and what I mean by that is like, you know, being diminished in our feelings or our instincts or intuitions, our hormones, always thinking more kind of less than or weak. That's also a mother wound. And so when we have this idea of mothers being negative or critical or harsh, then when we take in all that mothering, it can feel like poison to us. We can't keep that in us. It's dangerous. If, if our actual mothers have betrayed us or abandoned us, then that's not going to feel safe. And so we have to purge it out. And that for me has made the most sense. And when I tried to make sense of my behaviors, of what I was actually doing, trying to take in this comfort, but I couldn't hold it. And I had to get rid of it because it wasn't safe. So all that to say that then to recognize that, I had to do my own inner healing. I had to heal my mother wound. I had to heal my father wound. And I really had to develop my own kind mother and my own kind father inside of me. Will you say more about that, Jody? how you were able to do that? It's a deep and wide topic, healing the mother wound. And there's some beautiful teachers out there. Um, one who comes to mind right away is Bethany Webster and her work around healing the mother wound. Um, again, Marion Woodman speaks a lot about this. I'd also like to mention Dr. Anita Johnson, who has been my teacher and my supervisor. She wrote a beautiful book called Eating in the Light of the Moon. And she also uses this idea, which originated, I think, with Carl Jung about seeing the symbolism in food and um, behaviors And also this understanding that most of us have these complexes of the negative mother or the punishing father, the strict father, and that these complexes, um, these woundings in us need to be healed. They need to be, it's like they're, it's like an energy in us that actually needs to be transformed. For myself, I think, first of all, um, becoming a mother um, I'd often, when my kids were little, tell people that it was like having little mirrors running around, mm-hmm. reflecting back to me all the things I really didn't want to see in myself. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of gave me that in, that real drive to, to work on it. Uh, I think surrounding myself with uh, women who were on healing journeys, who I saw mothering that I really appreciated and wanted to take into myself. Uh, Those were important, Uh, having a therapist, um, having mentors who could, 
really, I look at it like remothering me, but ultimately recognizing the mother in myself. And as I could develop her um, and create a safety inside myself, I, it's like I could then mother, remother some of these younger parts of myself. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. And I know that when you were raising your children, that's when you became a counselor and eventually a psychotherapist. And then you've continued your work and your learning, which is obvious. And you've you've come to learn all about the symbolism and food and the feminine and the masculine and these complexes that take us over. And it's really the complex that we're acting from sometimes when we're unconsciously interacting with what we're taking into our bodies. And so what did that look like when you were becoming a counselor and going to school and and learning this information? Was that tied hand in hand with how you were healing yourself? Were you drawn to that work because of the healing that you've done, you did with yourself and then you wanted to help others? Yes, I would say yes to all of the above. I think most people go into healing professions because of their own healing paths and desire to continue healing themselves um, and then wanting to share that healing with others. So for me, this has really been a way of creating meaning out of my own life. As I've understood my story and really the making of an eating disorder, uh, you know, you're not born with these things, but the, you know, based on things that happen to us, we, we can form different addictions and unhealthy ways of being. As I could understand that and hold myself in compassion, which is a really big part of healing anything, because nothing changes when we hate it or resist it. Only things can really only change and grow when they're loved. So kind of coming, you know, finding that inside myself and then just so wanting to share that with others. And, you know, for me, doing that in, the, in, a, in a psychotherapy office seemed to, seemed to fit for, um, you know, just the life of my family and, and the, I guess the deep work I wanted to do with people. And when I met you, I know that you were coming to realize that there was only so much that you felt you could do with talk and you knew that there was so much information available to us through communicating with the body, which is why movement practices like yoga are so healing. And then that's been a big part of where you've taken your practice now in embodiment. Can you tell us a little bit about that and then the practices that continue to support you as you continue continue to heal. Yeah, I really appreciate your questions. It's good to reflect on these these parts of our stories. Uh, so I I like to think about healing. What no matter what kind of healing journey we're on, or you know, another way of thinking about this idea of recovery. You know, we, we recover first from our behaviors. You know, whatever it is we're doing that's not serving us. And then there's this journey of recovering ourselves, and that's to me a big part of the healing journey is 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 being able to recover my true self. And I I kind of see that in those four parts that we learn about in yoga. We recover our minds by really learning, you know, how to take like to notice our thinking and question our thinking and change our thinking to support different feelings and different behaviors. We recover our hearts, um, and for me, that means you know actually like allowing myself to feel things, welcoming my feelings, letting them bring their messages to me, letting them flow. Uh, and then there's this piece of the body, which is you know kind of where yoga can come in. Uh, well, actually, yoga touches all the parts of us, but for myself starting to practice yoga and really when I met you Lisa that's that was my I had done yoga before but this was like my serious I'm committing myself to this practice was so healing and life-changing to just be have this little mat that I put my body on and to have to you know stay there and be in these really uncomfortable poses but 
being able, learning how to breathe and stay in this discomfort and then see how my body could let go and become more flexible. And, and it just wasn't lost on me that this is life. Like this is, this is what I'm learning, you know, how to, how do you stay with really uncomfortable feelings like loneliness and boredom and anger without binging and purging or drinking or whatever we do. And that it was like yoga was teaching me, this is how you do it. This is how you stay with it. And, and that just led into, you know, learning how to meditate, which again is just coming back to yourself and, and connecting with yourself. Um, and because I also believe we, ha- you know, people have souls or true selves or higher selves or true essences, whatever you want to call that. I, I think that the practice and philosophy of yoga also helps us connect to that, to that deep center in ourselves, which for me feels like divine love and myself kind of mixed together. I know that means different things to different people, but, but that's that fourth place in us that needs to heal is our, our spiritual center. Amy, isn't that like the greatest public service announcement you've ever heard for yoga? <laughs> Ever, ever. It's so beautiful, Jody. Yeah, your description is taking me back to why I love it so much. That was that was said so beautifully. Uh, a few other things I want to make sure we touch on in our time together. In one of our magical walks and talks, you said that in this day and age, especially in this Western culture, that most women honestly uh, have eating that is a bit disordered, which. I loved it when you said that because I think that helps us all to have a bit more compassion towards us. I don't know how any of us could feel completely um, balanced towards food with all of the messaging that comes to us about it and what we shouldn't do and what we should do. Can you say a little bit more about that, about, about how we all struggle? Yeah. So, you know, I know the term eating disorder for a lot of people, that's a hard term and it sounds really extreme and we have criteria, you know, if you're going to actually have that diagnosis. And so there's going to be a certain percentage of the population. It's not a high, high percent, but it's a significant percent that, that will will have that diagnosis. But when we move away from that and just look at this idea of disordered eating, uh, I think in New Zealand, they call this eating difficulties, um, you know, and I connect that also with body image um, difficulties as well. I, it, it, I think it's pretty hard to be a woman in the Western hemisphere and not have some kind of uh, disordered relationship with food and with our bodies. And yes, this is because of the messaging, you know, the social media. Uh, the images that, you know, r- really little girls are fed, starting with Disney um, characters and, and even all the, the media around food. Three of my four children are daughters, and I've watched them all wrestle through this. And, um, and just tr- even trying to be in our bodies, whatever size and shape uh, and age they are. So can be so challenging, like to feel at home in our bodies in a society that keeps telling us how our body should look and what a healthy body is. Even our doctors sometimes, they pull out that BMI chart and they tell us, well, you're this height, so you should be this weight. There's a beautiful organization, um, Health at Every Size, that really directly um, hitting this idea that a healthy body has to be a certain weight. There are people who are much larger than our society would say is okay, who are very healthy. And people who are very small, who are quite unhealthy. So we have a lot of work to do in changing our ideas um, around, even around fat, right? This idea that, you know, fat is bad. And it, because it makes health problems, and so if you have, so if you have fat on your body, therefore you must be bad. This is how we internalize that message. When actually, fat is just fat. It's not good or bad. It's cells, and everybody needs to have some fat on their body. 
So yes, there's lots of work that needs to be done in this area. I can relate. My almost 17-year-old was sharing a story with me how she hadn't seen uh, the father of a friend in a really long time. And the first thing he said was, wow, you look amazing. You've lost weight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just so, it's so deep. And yeah. It just made me so sad to hear that. And then as we age as women, so now you're an empty nester. Amy is an empty nester. I'm, I'm getting there. As we're raising teenagers, as life gets busy and more difficult, as we as women are stressed and, and, and sad and unhappy, and sometimes this is when we can experience our first experience with our eating becoming more based in coping and in numbing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'm, I'm really glad you're bringing this up because this is actually a growing, um, a, a growing issue of, of women in their middle age, you know, falling into this sort of way of being with food. And either it's for the first time, often, you know, there has been something maybe when they were teenagers. We often think about disordered eating, eating disorders as an adolescent problem. And so, of course, then this creates more shame for older women who think, well, I should be past this. I shouldn't care so much what my body looks like. You know, I should have this figured out. I think Brene Brown refers to midlife as a great unravel, which I love and <laughs> have experienced. And, and yes, changing hormones, uh, you know, life stressors, children not needing us, or coming to terms with not having children. There's all sorts of things that can happen to us in midlife. And we live in a society where food, wine in particular, I find with women, wine is so accessible. And, you know, we have all these t-shirts about it and, you know, it's just like wine o'clock and it's just so accessible that it's it's very easy to again if we if we don't have a strong enough container inside of us to be able to hold all our feelings to be able to mother ourselves we might find ourselves reaching outside of ourselves in in food or alcohol or some for some people it's extramarital affairs whatever there's so many things we can do I mean, lots of women are smoking pot every day now. That becomes that sort of shameful secret. They don't want to tell anyone. That's kind of become their log to get them through maybe the boredom of being a stay-at-home mom. Nobody talks about how boring that is. <laughs> um, so, yes, lot, lots of, there's, there, this is happening for, for not just younger women, but middle-aged women. And also there are older women that are still struggling with this because either they haven't gotten the support they needed or they maybe have kept it a secret this whole time. They haven't been able to really find a place where they can, you know, be in their truth. And so I, I do have, I have such a heart to reach women like that and let them know that they are, you know, they're not alone and that there is lots of support. Do you find that, when you're working with women who are in their middle age, that there are different paths to recovery for them, like a a unique path for them given their age or stage in life? Uh, I think that actually for, for much, you know, women in their, you know, upper years, mid to upper years experiencing this, generally there's more resources inside them. They maybe don't know that yet, but, you know, especially if they've mothered their own children or they've mothered a career, um, sometimes we don't realize all the ways that, that we are healthy and that, you know, we have these inner resources. So I actually find that working with women who are no longer living with their parents, you know, you're not sending them back into maybe a system that's difficult. They actually get to create their own family system inside themselves. So, so yes, it would look a little bit different. And I think in some ways it, it might, they might actually have more resources uh, to, to be able to heal. I love how you just said that women can look 
inside themselves to look for the places that are healthy to the places that are resilient to what's going well within them. That's such a nice pathway towards this word compassion that we speak so much now, but is so utterly important to be able to take care of ourselves and um, be kinder to ourselves and forgive ourselves. And so for women that are listening in this moment that can identify with what we're talking about, where food is becoming a comfort because comfort is needed because a little bit of respite is needed. What are the most important things that you'd like to offer to those women? First, I want to say that that is so human. I so want people (laughs) to, you know, to recognize how human we are. You know, sometimes we can really start thinking like it's, I'm so you know, I'm such a freak or I'm a loser or what's wrong with me or, you know, it's so human to want comfort, to need comfort. I think we can often feel ashamed even of those needs. And it's very human to concretize those needs, to reach outside ourselves. Maybe it's not to food. Maybe we do that with people. I, I actually find that women in particular are kind of born and bred for this call this othering, you know, and getting what we need from our kids or our partner or our friends. So this is human. We do this and it doesn't serve us, you know, and that's, I guess it serves us until it doesn't. And when we realize it doesn't, it's, it's understanding, I guess, that deep inside of us, uh, we can find that nurture. We can find that comfort, that mothering, that fathering, that thing that that we're maybe thinking food will give us or wine will give us or whatever will give us. I wanted to really thank you for sharing everything that you've shared here. And especially the metaphor that you shared earlier in this podcast about the log. I don't know if you recall, but when I made that declaration in this room full of women that I was going to stop drinking. And I shared this on an earlier podcast. You were in that room and you pulled me aside after I made this declaration that the next thing I was going to do was stop drinking. You shared that metaphor with me about the log. And I really want to thank you now for that because I clung on to that for a long time that Drinking for me was this thing that I held on to, and you gave me the insight that I could let that go and maybe swim away from it a little bit. And then, you know, if I made my way back to the log because I got scared or panicked, that was okay. But then I could swim out a little bit farther away from the log. So I really thank you for sharing that gift with our listeners. Um, who might struggle with this topic, because that metaphor for me was very powerful. Well, you're very welcomed. And I, you know, that metaphor came from uh, Dr. Anita Johnson's book, Eating in the Light of the Moon. And I, yeah, personally just found that so helpful and, and so compassionate. It's such a compassionate way of looking at addictions in general, which is just really about being human. Um, and I think it also helps us to see that the path is learning how to float. It's learning how to do the doggy paddle. It's learning how to swim. And if, if you've ever learned how to swim as an, and can remember learning how to swim, you don't just learn it on the first day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a process. It's, an, it's, a, it's a practice. It's a life. It's like, I think of it now like the art of living. You know, this, this is what I'm learning is just the art of living and being alive. Which brings me to one of the last things you shared with me on a recent conversation is that a new mantra for you that you say to your body, to yourself all the time is I choose life. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. So um, I've come to understand that any, I mean, this is going to really work with any kind of addiction, any, any sort of way that we are self-harming um, if you, if you really think about it, honestly, it's a way of not living and sometimes even a way of, of wanting to die. Now we might not be conscious of that, 
You know, we might not walk around thinking we want to die. Some of us do. It could just look like, you know, well, if I didn't wake up tomorrow, that wouldn't be so bad. Or, you know, that feeling of just not everything's kind of gray and there's not a lot of hope for the future. And I, you know, because of my own story as a child, and so I've shared some of it here, and I think I share a little bit more of it on my, on my bio, on my website, I think as a very young person, it's like I carried, I don't know if death wish is too strong of a word, but definitely uh, archetypally, actually, Marion Woodman calls this the death mother energy, which is this energy of, you know, um, despair. And, and so that worked its way out, I think, in some of my really unhealthy behaviors. So when I really made this decision that I was, I wanted to recover, I wanted to heal, what I realized is that also meant I had to choose life. I had to want life. I, wa- I had to want to take in life in the form of nourishment. Uh, I, I had to want to be alive in my body, which, you know, we've mentioned yoga, but uh, dance has been a big part of that for me. And most recently, Qigong, um, these sorts of, um, Dr. Johnson calls this joyful movement as opposed to exercise, finding mm-hmm. ways of being joyful in my body and finding ways to embrace my life. <laughs> and I just wanted to share. Uh, This is just a short quote from Marion Woodman here uh, that really fits for me. But if you travel far enough, one day you will recognize yourself coming down to meet yourself and you will say yes. And so that's kind of my way of, you know, sometimes I do just say yes. (laughs) Yes to this feeling. Yes to this discomfort. Yes to my story. You know, yes to my pain. Yes to my joy. Yes to my love. Yes. Yes to my life. And that feels like recovery for me. Jody, thank you so much for that. That, you know, for all that you have shared with our listeners, I just, I can't thank you enough. I'm so grateful that, that you have taken the time to speak with us. And before you go, please let our listeners know how they can find you and how they can work with you. Lisa and Amy, thank you so much for creating this podcast. This is so wonderful and such a gift to the world. And um, I love what both of you are about and that you're combining your expertise and in your gifts and your beautiful voices. And so thank you. And thank you for inviting me to share my story. It's, it's actually It keeps me in recovery. It keeps me in my healing to keep telling my story and telling my truth and staying in that truth. So thank you for that opportunity. And so, yeah, probably the best way to find me is um, on my website, which is uh, www.jodicron.com, J-O-D-I-K-R-A-H-N. And I do tell my story in my bio, and, and I do have an online Uh, practice as well as an in-person practice. And as Lisa mentioned, I practice psychotherapy and I do specialize in women's transformational journeys and uh, in particular women who are struggling with addictions. And I've also created another part of my work. Um, Lisa, you alluded to it a little bit, realizing that talk therapy wasn't everything. It's important to have a space where your story can be witnessed. Uh, But I knew that women also need to be in their bodies. And so I've created this, this part of my work that I call Gather Her. And so these are workshops and retreats that I offer um, the, uh, to women that really we, we sit in a circle and we do joyful movement, which could look like Uh, some restorative yoga or qigong or dance we do expressive art and i read poetry and um, we do self-inquiry and then we share with each other different parts of our journeys and so this has this is really just my joy right now is offering these spaces for women to come and meet each other and and have these more embodied experiences of healing So I also have a Facebook 
page, which is just gather her. And I have an Instagram, which is at gather.her. And we will make sure to include all of that in our show notes. Thank you for giving us all of those wonderful resources. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Amy and Lisa. Thank you for listening to the Radiant Warrior podcast. If you found it valuable, please leave us a positive review to help others find it. And please check out the Radiant Warrior podcast on Instagram and Facebook to leave us your questions and find out where you can come and practice with us next.